Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verse 37. Luke 9, verse 37, and uh, I've really enjoyed this passage this week, even more than I expected I would, but that happens so often, but nevertheless, it happened again this week, which I always appreciate. Luke 9, verse 37, right after the transfiguration. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And the grass withers, the flowers fade, and this good word endures forever, and it's for you today. Amen. So, if you recall in verse 27 of chapter 9, Jesus encouraged his disciples with a promise. He had said a whole lot of hard stuff about walking the way of the cross, and so he gives them a promise. And the promise is, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then as an initial fulfillment of that promise, Jesus takes his core group, Peter, John, and James, up a mountain to pray. And night was falling, it was getting dark, so the three disciples 
got drowsy and drifted off to sleep. But, but meanwhile, as Jesus was praying, he was transfigured. Literally, the word is metamorphosized. The father manifests, mainly for the son's benefit, his own inherent glory. It's a kind, shepherding act of the father to his beloved son. And his face became literally other. It it shone like the sun, Matthew says. His glorified body beamed through his clothing so that they flashed like lightning. And then God brought Moses and Elijah through heaven's veil to support and strengthen his son, to speak with him about his departure, literally his exodon, his exodus, the cross he was heading towards in Jerusalem. And then Peter and John and James, they awake with a start and see this brilliant, radiant sight that they had been sleeping through of heavenly glory, and they so want the world to stop, to stand still so they can stay on that mountaintop, that gateway to glory and not come down and Peter blurts out master it's good that we're here let us make three tents one for you and Moses and Elijah and let's just let's just stay a little longer but God responds to Peter's words and he overshadows them all with his glory cloud his very presence that that revelation of the presence of God. And he proclaims, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And that's the high point of that ultimate question that we've been dealing with in this section of Luke. The section is focused on who is Jesus? And the crowds have their opinions. They keep coming up, and Herod has his opinions. So Jesus had asked his disciples, well, what's your opinion of me? And they respond correctly, the Christ of God. Yet, even as good as that is, the Father's announcement is much more ultimate and profound than theirs. This is my son, my chosen one. And at the heart of the universe is a father who loves his only son. Let me tell you what I think of him. I love him, and I'm proud of him, and he's mine. And you get to spend time with him. And doesn't that stir your heart to heaven, to be admitted into that kind of fellowship? Well, have you ever been on a mountaintop experience, and some special moment, time with the Lord where you just sensed his presence in a more tangible, real, profound way and it it makes this indelible mark on you. Different degrees of that. Maybe it was a deep repentance that you needed or a retreat you went on, a doctrine that moved you like you weren't expecting it to move you, a passage of scripture God used in your life and you still remember today, you remember the scene today, the environment today, how it felt and and you wanted to stay there 
And it, it changes us. And this experience, this moment, changed those three men. And Peter writes about it later on in 2 Peter. He goes, look, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Like we knew it, we were there, we heard the father speak over his son and what was the most important effect in, in Peter's life that he had that experience. Well, he goes on to say in 2 Peter, and we have the prophetic word more fully conformed, confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And what he's trying to say is, you know, that's the effect the father wanted the three to have because the father didn't just say, this is my son, my chosen one. He said, listen to him. And yet, remarkably, Peter is looking at us and he's saying, what you have by the Spirit speaking through the Word of God is every bit as much and more effective than what we had on top of the mountain with Jesus glorified, Moses and Elijah, and the voice booming from heaven. You have today to have fellowship with Jesus. Listen, listen to him. And yet we so struggle to listen, don't we? Now I still remember to this day, going into seventh grade, and it was still summertime, and I was in a classroom with some other kids, and we were taking an entrance exam to Jackson Preparatory School. And I was reading, it was this reading comprehension test, and we had to answer multiple choice questions about our reading, but there was an A and a B and a C version of those questions, and I was not paying attention. It was still summertime. I was daydreaming. I did not want to be there. And so I took the wrong version of the test, and the proctor didn't realize what I had done, so she called up to my mom. I'd failed the entrance exam to Jackson Prep. And so my family was shocked, and they were kind of worried about me. Uh, but then they all figured it out, and I got to go up there again in the principal's office, retake the test. But the issue is my classmates found out what I had done, that I had failed the test, and they made too much fun of me at my expense. It was not the way I wanted to start seventh grade, but as ridiculous as that failure to listen was, what we have recorded here as Jesus ends up his Galilean ministry, the public Galilean ministry, we're about to head to a new section, is it so much more ridiculous the failure to listen on the part of the disciples? And by implication, us. There's four vignettes here in which the disciples just fail to pay attention to Jesus. And so one commentator asked this, a guy named Michael Wilcock, a British commentator, I really appreciate this week. He says, by the high point of the transfiguration, what we need to know about Jesus and what we need to know about the church is already revealed to us. Like we have enough. So 
why doesn't Jesus go straight to Jerusalem? You see, if you look in verse 51 of chapter nine, the very next passage, it says this, when he, the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a very important text. And it starts the journey narrative of Luke, which is a unique aspect of Luke's gospel. So Luke begins the journey narrative, but he heads to Jerusalem. But the interesting thing is it takes 10 chapters to get there. And it takes a whole year of Jesus's earthly ministry to get there. Even though really he's conveyed all he needed to convey about himself or the church. So the question again is, why take all that time? Why such a windy path? And Wilcox says again, the reason why the gospel narrative, like the Israelites' journey through Sinai, comes within sight of its goal, only to be turned away into a lengthy detour before it actually gets there, is brought out by the four incidents which Luke relates immediately after the story of the transfiguration. (laughs) These instances show why Jesus delays. And it's because they have such a hard time listening. They're like Israel in the wilderness who failed to enter the promised land and he needs to teach and train them further and he needs to do that for us. It's, it's remedial education, especially about the implications of the cross and it's a good thing they needed it because we need it too. So it's a series of, of contrasts here in which in Lucifer's words, Jesus is trying to beat the gospel into our heads because we resist it. So there's four little vignettes. The first, Why does Jesus have to stick with them along a windy path and train them further? The disciples quit depending on Jesus. The first is the disciples quit depending on Jesus. And so the next morning, Jesus and the three descend the mountain and and the shift from the top of the mountain to the base couldn't be more drastic. It's, it's It's a really sharp contrast. It's like when Moses descended the glory cloud of Sinai with the Ten Commandments ready to lead Israel and they're in this debasement of idolatry with the golden calf. It's like that. So Luke makes the contrast even more striking than Matthew and Mark because he streamlines it. He eliminates some information to move straightly from the mountain down to the base. And we go from the sublime scene on the mountain to the suffering of the world, the light of God to the darkness of the devil, the devotion of the disciples to God to this lack of dependency on Jesus's power. And you and I know that after meaningful experiences with the Lord, so often what we encounter directly afterwards is a real battle, a spiritual warfare, temptation, and trial. It's, it's just gonna happen. And they have it here. And so it's heartwarming to see that Jesus doesn't just come to celebrate his own glory, but to submerse himself in our need. He comes down the mountain, right in the midst of that. And so there was a Renaissance Italian artist named Raphael, and his last painting was the Transfiguration. One commentator says it actually killed him. And it's just so moving because it shows Jesus in glory on top of the mountain in splendor and majesty, but right at the foot, tinted in shadow, is this crowd of people in angst and unrest and just waiting for him to get there, to sort it out. So right when Jesus gets down the mountain, a father, this man, a father, cries out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. And Luke's the one that adds that detail. As he's done in other instances, he marks that he's not just a child but an only child. He's empathetic and sensitive to that 
conveying God's heart. And so in addition to a contrast, we have a comparison because now we have a scene in which there are two fathers who love their only sons. And surely after the father declared how much he loved him on top of the mountain, this scene tugged at Jesus' heart. And so the father describes in vivid, disturbing, heart-rending detail about how this evil spirit seizes his son, causes him to cry out, convulses him, makes him foam with the mouth, and a strong word, word shatters him, like throws him down and beats him and bruises him, just abuses him and won't leave him alone. It's this tenacious, intractable, just, just ruthless spirit And it's a form of epilepsy, but one that's demonically caused. And the man says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. And so not only is the scene one of sadness, but it's also one of of this tension. The nine disciples who not long ago cast out demons on their short-term mission trip, they can't do it anymore. They don't have the power, the authority to heal this this abused boy anymore. They, they can't do it. Nine of them are sitting there, not even two by two. Nine are there and they can't do it. And Jesus' first response surprises us. And normally his first response, you know, is to have this intestine-churning compassion before need and misery like this. I mean, if anything would have evoked this in Jesus as a scene like this, where an only son is being tormented But Jesus surprises us and says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I gonna be with you and bear with you? And we see part of the angst and the suffering of Jesus is not just the pinpoint issue of the cross, as dreadful as that was, it's this this whole life of dealing with sinners. But it's acute here, right after the transfiguration. What's going on? He quotes Deuteronomy 32, five, which is Moses' song describing unbelieving Israel in the wilderness, the first generation that didn't believe God. It's, It's why they had to keep wandering and delaying their entry into the promised land. Jesus reflects God's same sorrow, his same frustration over the lack of faith. And so who is Jesus talking about? Who is it that's having this lack of faith here? Well, in a general way, it's the whole crowd. The whole scene is a faithless scene, but in a specific way, it has to be the disciples, I think. I mean, they're the ones he's training. They're the ones he commissioned to cast out demons, and they can't do it. It's the disciples. He's looking at his closest people and friends and saying, how, how long am I gonna have to bear with you? And see, the disciples have quickly, so quickly, drifted into faithlessness and lack of dependence. And Mark would say this complete absence of prayer. And they've forgotten that they can't do things on their own. They've forgotten the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000, that I'm gonna put you in situations that you don't have the wherewithal to do it but you're supposed to ask me for the resources you don't have, and they didn't do it. It's a spiritual issue with them. And do you have a category in your life for Jesus to express such grief and sorrow over you? 
And, you know, his fundamental attitude towards us is, is unbridled sympathy and compassion. And yet, mingled with that is this, this loving frustration for you to believe upon me and depend upon me. Might we need to hear that voice sometime over us? I know I need it at times. And then just see how hateful and spiteful the devil is. So as the father leads his only son to Jesus, he's almost there. And the demon makes this last ditch effort to to hurt him and kill him before he can get to Jesus. He throws him down and convulses him. It's a picture of how much the devil hates you and how much he wants to keep you from Jesus. And he'll use anything, anything to do so. But at the same time, we see the devil's no match for Jesus. Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, and that's all it takes. He rebukes, heals the boy, and gives him back to his father, which is another Lucan detail here. It shows that that special empathy and sympathy to reunite him to the father who loves him. And the crowd is just awed at the majesty of God. Here, it's not the majesty of God on the mountain. It's the majesty of God in mercy and might towards sinners in need like you and me. The disciples fail to depend on Jesus. Well, second, the disciples can't understand the cross. They can't understand the cross. So while the crowds are marveling over Jesus, Jesus turns to his 12 disciples, and again, he's shifting from his public Galilean ministry to greater stress on his private ministry, the training of disciples. And I imagine he... Like in the midst of all that excitement, he gets his crew around himself. He looks them in the eyes, like trying to get their eyes like we do with our kids. Let these words sink into your ears right now. The you is emphatic. You let these words sink in. Pay attention to this. Keep it in mind. Store it in your heart. Listen carefully like the father told the three on the mountain. And what do they need to take in? Deeply. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And it's another marked contrast. Because we've gone from the approving, enthusiastic crowds to Jesus prophesying a condemning and angry, scornful crowd. We've gone from all-powerful exorcist, Jesus, to now one who's gonna be a helpless victim before the hostile crowds. And it's shocking the, the contrast here. He's about to be delivered into the hands of men. He'll be delivered up by men, but ultimately what he's saying, this is a divine passive. Ultimately, he's being delivered up by God. In verse 21, his first prediction of his cross, he says it must happen. It must happen because that's God's decree, and it's the only way that sinners can be forgiven. So the very father who so delights in his only son who would be so grieved reflecting the grief and horror of the man in this scene who had to watch his son be tormented by the devil, the father who so delights in his son and would hate that is going to do this because that's the only way he can deliver you and me from the devil and you and I are in a worse grip, more tenacious 
left to ourselves than this boy is in our passage. This is the only way that sins can be atoned. Therefore, a father who delights in his son is willing for delight of you submit his son to such torment that he would suffer the wrath of God and the judgment of God on our behalf to wash us clean. It's the only way, it's the gospel And so Jesus' second prediction is briefer, but it's even more disturbing because there's no good news at the end. There's no resurrection at the end. As the first one said, in the third day, he'll rise. And so it just says the disciples don't understand Jesus' prediction. They don't get it. It doesn't sink in. It bounces off. They can't. And we wonder why. And the text says it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And so, who or what conceals it from them is a good question. Why can't they get it? And so, most believe it's God who concealed it. And I think there's truth to that because, you know, God works with us and prepares us to receive more revelation. It's not until after the resurrection that they really can understand. But I think there's more to it here. And it's something that we need to take into account. God uses things, even even evil things. And so there's the work of the devil here. The devil doesn't just torment this boy, the devil blinds mind. It's like the peril of the sower here, the, the seed that bounces off the path. It's just not sinking in. It's a result of their own hearts. As we'll see in a second, they, that keeps them from taking in the word of the cross. It's this presupposition that that, that can't be the way Messiah operates. And then it says they're afraid to ask him because they don't want to know. You know, sometimes we don't ask because we don't want to know the answer. And I think there's something about that. And so what is it in the hearts of the disciples that just eliminates this word of the cross? Well, that leads us to the third vignette, little story. The disciples compete with each other for glory. The disciples compete with each other for glory. See the contrast again. I mean, it's it's sharp. Jesus' heart is on self-sacrifice, but the disciples' heart is on self-centeredness. Jesus is focused on service, but the disciples are focused on superiority. It's so deeply ingrained in their fallen hearts, they can't take it in. And that's the big reason they can't understand the cross. They're prideful, competitive hearts. It's this self-preserving, self-promoting heart, and it's true for us too. The way the cross just can't sink in. When it really matters in real relationships, it just doesn't sink in because we're self-focused. Everything repels it. And we just think we're supposed to be first. I mean, our own Declaration of Independence enshrines that as it says, you know, you have a self-evident inalienable right to pursue your happiness. And we take that, we take that in. It's just a great reflection of what our heart naturally is like. And so Jesus is talking about the cross and the disciples are arguing about who's greater, competing about gifting and, and privilege. And it's just comical. It's, they argue out of Jesus' earshot, but he knows their thoughts. And throughout Luke, at various times, it says Jesus knows what you're thinking about. And so Jesus gives them an object lesson. He takes a little child, and in their culture, a child wasn't worth spending time with. And so he takes a child who's not worth spending time with because he can't understand the law very well, and he puts him in front of the disciples at his side saying, he's with me, he's worth spending time with. 
And he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is also is the one who is great. And it's a profound lesson here. It, it put, turns everything upside down. It says greatness isn't comparing your privileges and power with others. God's nature is such that greatness is going down to the lowest spot. Therefore, to be great, you don't compare your strengths, you serve the lowest, like Jesus did. And so as you receive the least prestigious and the least powerful because of Jesus, you receive Jesus, and in receiving him, you receive the one who sent Jesus. And so Jesus is saying the cross is stamped on our whole lives. We humble ourselves to, to care for the lowest, and that's true greatness. It's reflective of the very cross of Christ, which is the high point of God's majesty in the Gospels. The disciples competed with each other for glory. They needed more training. And lastly, the disciples contest someone who's not in their group. They contest someone who's not in their group. And so it's the fourth story, and it's a further manifestation of that self-centeredness that keeps the word of the cross from sinking into their minds and hearts. And so the previous vignette dealt with pride that manifests itself within the discipleship group, or we could say within the church. And this is how it manifests itself toward outsiders, those who aren't in their group. And so John reports, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him but he, because he does not follow us. But Jesus surprises him. He says, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. And so we look at this and we say, if there's ever a time in the history of the church where John's words would make sense, it's right here because Jesus is literally with them. Shouldn't they be with us following Jesus? But this exorcist is operating kind of independently. And it's kind of funny because he's having success and the nine disciples haven't been able to cast out this demon. See, so you wonder what's going on in John's heart. You know, he was kind of a competitive guy before he finally got the cross. So it looks like in our text that this is really a true disciple, but he wasn't close to the other apostles, so he didn't just accompany them a whole lot. And Jesus looking at him and saying, as long as he's doing this in my name, he's for you, not against you. So he looks at his disciples and said, don't be so narrow and exclusive and restrictive to think that someone has to follow with us in order to truly serve me. It's an incredible lesson for us. Another way that pride can manifest itself to say, well, what we need to see in this lesson is saying we cherish our doctrine and we should, we should, we love it. We should never give place to this critical spirit that sits in judgment on other churches or other groups or points out the foibles of other Christians, but rather cultivating this critical spirit, put it down, but rather that thinks that God, oh, and that also thinks that God can only work through us. And the point that Jesus is making is as long as they labor in my name, and listen to my word, and the fundamentals clearly revealed in it, we join arm in arm with them, even if they have distinctions in other ways. And so these four lessons, these four stories, these four errors in their, in their faith, really. And so it looks, it looks at us, too. It says, how do we quit depending on Jesus? 
And how do we close our minds to the implications of the gospel? How do we compete with other churches? Or no, how do we compete within our church, within our family, within our marriage? And how do we overly critique those in other groups or other churches? And do we grieve the Lord Jesus in the process? And when we look at this, the overall lesson is how compassionate he is. He doesn't stay on top of the mountain, but he descends. And in fact, more than that, 951, he says he sets his face to Jerusalem, to his cross. He goes there precisely to atone for this kind of deep-seated sin patterns that we have. And not only that, but he's patient to walk around 10 chapters, a whole nother year, along a windy road with his disciples to imprint in their lives more and more by his presence and by his teaching what the cross of Christ looks in their daily life, which is for their good and the good of others. And he's patient with us and leads us on a windy path at times. But the goal is to make his cross more real and more present, to even beat that gospel deeper into our minds and hearts. And thanks be to God.